The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. My name is Paige, and as usual, I'm very excited to say that I'm with Johnny Primo today, who I've been amped about interviewing for quite a while now. Um, he's, he's kind of a big deal. So he was in the Army for 17 years, the vast majority of that time. He served as a Green Beret, and he's also the founder of Courses of Action. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. So... Um, Will you start from the beginning? I just kind of, as you know, I just beginning want to hear as far story. as I remember. All right, so um, so my stuff gets pretty dark right out the gate. Um, I uh, I was born in Bucharest, not Germany. Uh, my father was doing Cold War era counterintel stuff against the Russians, and my mother was a JAG officer in the military. And they met in Washington State. Then they both PCS to Germany. And that's where I was born. We came back and uh, my father stayed in. He was at Fort Drum in New York. My mother left the military to raise me. And at this point I was around three years old. And my father decided to have my mom knocked up with my little brother William and another lady knocked up at the same time. Nice timing. Yeah, so... um, so my mom left him, and we lived in upstate New York in a car for about two and a half months during the winter, so you can imagine how that was. And uh, eventually my family in Arizona found out what we were doing, and they drove out to pick us up. And mind you, my little brother was just a baby at this point. He was about seven weeks old. Um, so we relocated to Arizona, and... Uh, in Arizona, we lived in this shitty little town named Coolidge for a little bit. Then we went to California. But I remember very distinctly whenever we were in Arizona, we had no car or anything like that. My mother wrote for a newspaper there. And I remember going into town and she pulled my little brother and I in a wagon. And it wasn't like a short distance. I go back now and I mapped it out last time I was in Arizona. And literally she pulled us like three and a half miles one way and three and a half miles the other just to get us in town so we could get groceries and stuff like that. Um... Eventually, we moved to California, and she joined the Guard, and she was a JAG officer again and did all that stuff in the military as far as attorney stuff goes for the military. Um, then moved back to Arizona whenever I was in kindergarten, and she was a JAG officer. She was, guard, she was reserve or guard. I forget what it was, what capacity, and she was at Fort Huachuca. And uh, we had a babysitter who was a Spanish lady. And I, I always craved attention and stuff like that, so I just wanted to be cool and fit in. And how old were you at this? I point? was five. Okay. Yep. And um, her daughter, for lack of a better term, stand by. Yeah. All right now, so um, at five years old, we had a babysitter named. Jamar, I started fast forwarding there for a second there. And it was one of my mother's coworkers' husbands. And 
essentially what he had was, and I'm be straight up, like he, it was him and his buddies who were all in their late twenties, early thirties. And all the kids that were there, he made us have like this kid's fight club. And if we showed any emotion, the grown men would beat us up. Like they would, like if I were to fight a grown man now, that's how they were hitting us. I remember constantly being thrown against walls, knocked out, concussed, things like that. And if I, I had an option when my little brother, if they made him fight that I could fight for him. So my little brother never fought, needless to say. And uh, it was kind of funny. I was talking to him about a year and a half ago. And I started coming out about this stuff. And he's like, you know, I remember. I thought it was just a dream. But I remember you getting thrown against the wall, like 10 feet thrown against the wall, falling on the ground, passed out. And then these adult men kicking you. And I was like, yeah, that wasn't a dream. That really happened. And I did it so you didn't have to fight. I remember going home. Telling my grandma and my mom, my gra- my grandma was always there in my life. She was a constant. My I, I only remember my mom having one boyfriend in her entire life, and uh, my grandma was there. And I remember telling them like, "Hey, this is going on. This is going on. This is going on." Like, "Yeah, right. You fell. That's why you're bruised." Da 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 da. Fast forward about a month and a half ago, I was in Arizona. My grandma's like, "You know, I remember you telling me this, and I didn't want to believe it, but I know it was real now." It's like, "Yes, it was." So, did that. We left, left that babysitter and at the age of seven had another babysitter, a Spanish lady. And at this point, we weren't living anything spectacular at all. And um, the Spanish lady's daughter, excuse me, who was a little 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there. I remember one day we were in a closet and then she touched like my genitalia. And the next thing you know... I'm having sex with this late teen girl and I'm not, I'm not comprehending what it was, but like I said, I craved attention. You know, I didn't have a dad, so I craved attention from anywhere I could get it. And not saying my mom or grandmother didn't give me attention. They gave me plenty. And, uh, but I thought she thought I was cool. So that's why we're doing this. And I didn't think it was a bad thing at all. I thought, whatever, this is, this is what's, I just didn't think it was wrong. And, uh, that went on for about six and a half months. And then we moved babysitters, moved out of state, and uh, we're in Southern California. And I just had, I was just always in trouble in school, no matter what, you know. Um, I remember threatening kids that I was gonna, that I was gonna like kill them and weird shit like that. And uh, <laughs> I remember in third grade, we had to write down what we want to be when we grew up. And I was like, I'm going to kill bad guys for money. And immediately called in the school psychologist, like a third grader and with a psychologist. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? My mom comes in. I'm like, no, I'm going to kill bad guys for money. So keep on going around the age of 12. Um, well, I started skateboarding when I was five and I started wrestling when I was five as well. And that comes into play later on. But around the age of 12, that's when I started getting noticed for skateboarding and started getting sponsors and stuff like that. And I'm started getting paychecks. When you um, were 12? When I was 12 years old. And I would be doing demos and stuff like that and everyone was older than me there was a there was a pro skater but i remember because i could get free stuff and uh give people stuff that i was 12 years old and all of a sudden i'm sexually active and it's with girls that are in high school and stuff like that it's weird because i could give them stuff that was given to me i could give them stuff so i was cool 
doing store, doing skate demos in the summers, things like that. And it just got worse, worse, worse. Started smoking weed, weed turned into Coke, all this stuff. And then my mom passed away when I was 14. It's like, wow. Okay. Moved in with my grandma in Arizona and she happened to live near Arizona state university. And at this point in time, you know, my name was pretty well out there as far as professional skateboarding went. Um, all the videos that kids were getting and watching, like that was me on there and still wrestling, which like I said, will come into play here in a little bit. My grandmother was a great person and she didn't, you know, she, she was trying to be as strict as she could. However, I'd sneak out, do whatever I wanted to do. Arizona State University at that point in time was nine, nine girls to every one guy. And I was a cool kid in town. So I just started rebelling right out the gate when my mom passed. Started getting into, you know, I was already doing smoking weed. I was already drinking. I was already doing cocaine. And then I started doing ecstasy and all this other shit. I never did anything intravenous. Um, but I was just on this downward spiral. I was, I was a 14-year-old living a rock star lifestyle and partying with college girls and doing all this craziness. Um, I was always good in school in high school, but I, I usually skip classes and just show up for tests. I'd smoke the test, but I, I, so I just maintained like a C average. But when I took a test, I'd, I'd get a hundred percent. And the teachers were like, Hey, you know, if you came here, you'd actually probably be on the honor roll. That never happened. So kept on wrestling, maintained the C average so that I could wrestle in high school. I wrestled two weight classes, wrestled 103, 114. I ended up doing really, really, really well. And I'm going to fast forward through some of the high school stuff. It, it's all the same, just drinking, boozing, sexual intercourse at a very young age. Comes time to graduate, and I was a shoe in to wrestle for Arizona State University. I met the minimum grade average in high school. And Around this time in 98, that's whenever Sammy the Bull's son, the old mafia dude, Gerard Gravano, all his guys started getting busted for dealing ecstasy. Well, I was right under Gerard Gravano, probably about 65 dudes underneath me working for me, dealing ecstasy on the campus of Arizona State University, and I hadn't even graduated high school yet. And I started seeing all these smaller fish, their homes were getting hit, things like that. And I was like, my grandma can't, like, they can't raid my grandma's house. So I literally went into the recruiter and I was like, hey, I need to get out of here. He's like, have you taken your ASVAB? No, I haven't. So I went and took it, scored a, my, my GT score, general technical score, which is what they judge you off for what you're going to do in the military, was a 126. They essentially said I could do whatever I wanted to do. I just want to get out of there. They're like, do you want a bonus? I was like, no. So I said, I just want to jump out of planes, blow shit up. Went into the Army as a 12 Bravo two weeks later. Uh, OSET was at Fort Leonard, Missouri. Wait, what did your grandma say about all this? She didn't know about any of it. She didn't? No, I hid it off from her. Uh, she just knew that I always had money and could buy cars and stuff. And um, she kind of didn't ask questions. Okay. So ended up at Fort Leonard, Missouri. Did that. I was a holdover after everyone graduated AIT. And then all of a sudden there were like 15 of us. Said, who wants to go to jump squat? I raised my hand. Two of us volunteered. Went to jump squat at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. Still didn't know where we were going. I landed in the 82nd for like nine months. 
and started bucking the system around the gate. Something I did do in high school was I did that stupid junior ROTC stuff where you have to wear a uniform once a week. However, doing that allowed me to go into the military as an E4. And it was like, this is dumb. We did a peacekeeping mission in Sinai. A 12 Bravo's job is like demolitions and counter demining operations. So that's not really that amazing thing when you actually have to take mines out of the ground, landmines. You're like, wow, okay, longevity of life's probably not that high right now. Came back from that. Whenever everybody was on block leave, I went to the SF recruiter, had my company commander, first sergeant, platoon sergeant, sent off on waivers. And two days prior to everyone coming off leave, I didn't take leave. I was in special force selection. And I know we're going to go into stuff about that later, so I'm just breezing through this. Um, graduate selection, ended up in third group. And uh, that's where I wrote it out the entire time. So that's a very expedited version of... <laughs> The gist of my life. All right. <laughs> um, so how did you handle going into the army? I mean, because you had, you had been a kid who was, had a ton of freedom and was doing whatever he wanted really. And then you went into all of the structure all at once. Uh, so I was okay in basic and AIT. I just knew it was like, okay, just deal with this BS for as long as I have to. There's an end state to this. Then whenever I got to the 82nd, my first platoon leader had a ranger tab, special forces tab and all that. And he was enlisted in special forces and he had to go back to the regular army as officers do before they can go back into the Q course as an officer and then go back to group. My company XO was a ranger SF and he was Delta force as well. His name was Rob Jenkins. And so those guys were like, hey, you are awesome whenever we go in the field you suck in garrison. And I was uh, like, whenever you're not training and stuff like that. So like regular everyday life in the military. And they literally said, you have to do something because you're going to get kicked out of the army. I was a guy, I didn't care what rank you were. If you said something stupid, I'd, I'd counter that. Why? Why are you saying this? Somebody told me to do something. I was like, there's an easier way we can do this. And this is how we're going to do it. And like, whoa, dude, you don't, (laughs) you can't even talk like this. So I was constantly in trouble Constantly on extra duty, constantly just stepping on my own wiener for lack of a better term. And the leadership knew they saw potential in me. It just wasn't in the conventional military. So initially I did okay. And then once I got to big army, I did horrible. So then how did you, like, how did you make an adjustment? I didn't. Um, I, whenever we came back from that deployment, I went straight to selection. And after that, uh, the Special Forces Q course, and I selected the Special Forces Q course is big boy rules and special operations in general is big boy rules. If you're not asking questions and trying to be rebellious, in my opinion, that's what makes a good Green Beret. And I just fit in right there, right out the gate. So the Q course, no issues. My team, no issues um, because that's what's expected. Everyone asks questions and come up with a plan. You know what I mean? That makes sense. Did you did you have any sort of this question is kind of out of the blue, but did you did you have any sort of like difficulty with the fact that you had been doing a lot of drugs and now you weren't? No, not at all. You no. didn't get addicted to anything. Then? No, I'd say probably the worst thing that happened to me whenever I was whenever I was there, whenever I was doing drugs and stuff. I was clinically dead when I was 17 years old for four minutes from alcohol poisoning. Um, but I mean, 
I was doing ecstasy maybe once every week, two weeks, and then cocaine here and there. I'd smoke weed every day. I mean, I'm going to be real with you guys. As a veteran, <laughs> and I'll say it because everyone knows how I think, um, I still I still smoke weed and I still do CBD oils with THC because the VA is just going to give you all these pain pills. So every veteran that I know that just smokes weed or does CBD oil with THC is far better off than taking those pain pills. Um, but no, it was, it, whenever I was in the military, it was an easy adjustment. It was just stop. You know, it wasn't bad. That's just like, it's a whole different mindset. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the way you grew up to, because like so many, so many people, and I hate to say it, but it's true. So many people are, are a product of their environment mm-hmm. and you just like, it's almost, it almost sounds like it's a, it doesn't almost, it does sound like it was a great thing that you just, you went to that recruiter's office and went that route. Well, yeah. Well, so the thing is, is the same thing that we were, that they try to teach you in special operations, protect, protect the innocent. I was protecting the innocent when I was five years old. Yeah. Um, coming up with plans, thinking outside the box and doing all that stuff. I was doing that whenever I was 12, trying to make money as a pro skater. Um, and then drug dealing, standing up a standing up a network, and having people work for me, and make me—it's the same as in special operations, as far as teaching people how what to do. This sounds ridiculous, I know it does. And standing up a network so that people can work under you, and you have a source network going out there. So it was kind of like I've already kind of done similar things in my life prior to going into the military. No, that makes sense. I never thought of it in that way. Um. So was your first was your first deployment in Syria then? No, no, not Syria. It was the Sinai Peninsula. Oh, yes. Yep. Okay. Um, that was my first deployment. It was a NATO mission. So we went from you know in eighty second we had maroon berets. There you were like this peach beret with this all this circle patch that had a dove with an olive branch in it, and that's the NATO patch. So everyone was in the NATO capacity there. And yeah, that was that would be the first one, and that was in ninety nine. And then when, like, how old were you when you went through selection? I was 20. Yeah, 20. Man. 19. 19 in selection and then 20 in the Q course. Jeez. Okay. So you, I mean, like, as we talked about before this interview, I mean, you moved real quick. Yeah, I, did, I knew that conventional military wasn't for me, so I went right in, right in, right out the gate. The beautiful thing about the 82nd is you're on Fort Bragg. So at that time, there was 7th Special Forces Group, 3rd Special Forces Group, and Delta Force. And now it's just DFO and 3rd Group there. Um, but there were constantly these guys running around with beards and long hair and doing all this stuff. And I really didn't know what I was getting into at selection. I just knew that regardless, it would be 31 days away from the 82nd. So whether I pass or fail, I was still not... <laughs> having to be in my unit, which I hated. And so I just went without knowing what it was. I didn't train up for selection. I didn't do anything. I just went. How did that go? Um, out of almost 500 dudes, I was one of the 60 selected. So oh, wow. it went okay. Yeah. It's not about physical capacity there. It's about mental toughness. Yeah. Um, as, as cliche as it sounds, you put your left foot in front of the right foot and repeat until you're done. And some people that let other stuff, negative thoughts get in their head that don't make it. And I thrived off that. 
every day before we started selection, you'd have they'd have all the quitters come out, and they'd just have them stand in front of you so you get to see them, and then you start your day. So I was like, you know what? I, I'm not saying I didn't want to quit selection because I did. I wanted to quit selection every day. I just never actioned it. But I knew I was better than those guys, and I kind of thrived off that as negative as it sounds, knowing that they quit. I'm still here. All I have to do is step one foot in front of the other and repeat until this is done. And I will not end up with those losers. And that's what I did. Man. So then after special selection or after selection, yep. um, what, like what happened next? Um, after that, I was worried because so immediately after selection, you go back to uh, SWIC, the JFK Special Warfare Center in, in school there on Fort Bragg. And you open up a folder and it tells you what your MOS is. So I was petrified that I was going to be at 18 Delta, which is a medic. Generally speaking, higher GT score, you get 18 Delta. Lower GT score, you get 18 Bravo. So like 110 to 115, you get 18 Bravo one or 18 Charlie. 115 to 120-ish, 123-ish, you get 18 Echo, which is communications. And anything over that, you get 18 Delta. And out of 126... I was like, holy cow. And I ended up getting 18 Bravo. So I was stoked on that. Why didn't you want to be a medic? I don't, it's not appealing to me at all. And they're in the Q course for an extra year, longer than we are. Majority of them don't make it, so they just wash out and have to go be an 18 Bravo anyway. And, and in my opinion, a majority, even 18 Deltas will tell you this, a Green Beret, like what people think, would be an 18 Bravo. 18 Deltas aren't really working that much on a team. Um, if they are, then something bad happened or we're using them in med cap while we're deployed. They're the least work guys on a team that are the most needed dudes on a team, if that makes sense. So you need them. They're the most important job on a team, but they're, they don't do much on a team until they actually have to do something and then they're saving lives and shit. So then what was your first deployment as a Green Beret? Uh, that was in Afghanistan, and <clears throat> it was it was eye-opening. You know, um, everyone wants to be in a firefight until you're in a firefight. And we were, this is early days in Afghanistan, and we were in Helmand Province, my team was. And we would be getting in firefights up to two, 300 dudes versus my team, which at that time was 9 to 10 dudes max. And you didn't have... And this was, it was like this everywhere for special operations in Afghanistan at this point in time. So you may or may not have air assets. So you could be in a firefight for 10 seconds, 10 minutes, or 10 hours. It just, you never knew. It was just going to go, 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 go. Um, I was young. I was dumb. I was loud. All the senior guys on the team said, you know, I was got to get in a firefight, got to get in a firefight, got to get in a firefight. And then the first one happened. I was like, that wasn't bad. Second one happened. That wasn't bad. You know, they keep on happening. That's not bad. And then the deployment after that one, July 23rd, 2005, is whenever my teammate Jason Palmerton was killed. And that was literally, we went in there with nine guys, ended up with eight of us. He was killed about an, an hour into it. And that lasted 14 hours. A little over 200 bad guys, and the only thing that saved us was we dropped six 2,000-pound JDAMs 150 meters away from us. I remember there were uh, so bombs. Okay. So six 2,000-pound bombs, 12,000 pounds worth of bombs 150 meters away, which is literally like 
from here to that road that you see out there, 700. And um, you had things, it was like chunks of stuff the size of like a Geo Metro flying over you. And you're just like, holy cow, we're all going to die right now. Um, they wouldn't send QRF in. They wouldn't do any of that stuff. But just because they worried about the helos getting shot out of the sky. And that one was my firefight where I said, I can go without having to do one of these ever again. However, the capacity that I chose to be in the military, it was inevitable that majority of the time, whenever we rolled, we were going to be in one. Right. Yep. So how did, I mean, were you close to the man that was oh yeah that was that was jason so i mean he was literally whenever it happened probably like from here to the tv for me um and we were in the q course together we were teammates together i used to pick on him all the time he's like a little brother he was 23 at the time and yeah he was he was good he was he wasn't my best friend on the team but i mean on a team just because you're not best friends it doesn't mean you don't care i tell people Jason dying, I'd rather have to deal with what I did emotionally with my mom dying 100 times over than deal with Jason dying once. And that's just how it is on a team. Yeah, I've heard that the friends you make on a team are the best friends you'll ever have. Yeah. Yeah. So 14 hours of fighting, how far through that fight was he killed? Uh, About an hour into it. And then they wouldn't send Meta back in, so he's just next to us all the time. We went in there, got his body. And then he was just next to us the whole time. So, and I, I know like as a Green Beret, you don't have a ton of time to process that because it's, you know, they're, they're more missions. No, I mean, it right? just kind of happened. It's like, okay, Jason's dead. It's like, holy cow, he's dead, but we can't stop. Go and get his body, bring him out. And, you know, he bled out before he hit the ground. It, the round went about quarter inch above his plate. Bounced off his scapula clavicle area, went straight down in his aorta, and he bled out before... I mean, he was dead before he hit the ground. We go in there, get his body, drag him back to us, and then if we were moving forward to close the distance with the bad guys, we had to drag him next to us. And it's like, at this point, it's it's weird because your buddy's dead next to you and you want to be gentle with him, but you still have to watch over your own self, so you're just kind of like dragging him on the ground. Um yeah man that's a lot yeah it's I mean that's I'd say that that happens more often than not though you know what I mean it's uh and the thing is is after that we process it they flew us back in to a big base from our fire base we had to do basically an after actions report or AAR with our battalion commander JAG and all these guys and then talk to the the chaplain and do all this stuff. And then we carried Jason's body onto the plane. Uh, the next day we flew out back out to the fire base and at Goresh, we had operation Palmerton two and a half weeks later. And we put an, on a message out like anybody that want to be a part of it. We had five other teams of green berets come in an FBI SSC package and an entire Lurse company of 90 dudes from the conventional military went back in there and killed any fighting age male that had a gun. So, um, if you had a gun and you're fighting age male, then you pose a threat at us, then you're taken care of. Obviously, we we have we're mature enough to have judgment, even though we wanted to decimate everyone there. You know, it's still you have to the maturity of a green beret and, and controlling your emotions. So, but it was if we hit your compound and you were holding a gun, 
you were a threat. And that's where it went. Did you consider like leaving the military after that? Not at all. No, mm-hmm. it just drove me to do it even more because you get addicted to it, right? It's like, it's like a, it's like an adrenaline high. You're like, wow, that sucked. Let's do it again. So, I don't know. It's like you're always challenging yourself. You know, they say you have nine lives. I or a cat has nine lives. Towards my end, whenever I decided to get out, that's why I got out. It's like, man. I, I've definitely passed that, so it's it's not if it's when now. So yeah. <clears throat> so then, what was like what what was your next deployment after that? Uh, we came back and we went back four months later to Afghanistan, and we were where were we at? Were we in Oregon province or DR? I forget what the pro- what base we're at that. Same thing, same team, went back. And I mean, every deployment that we did for the most part up until 2012, no, 10, was essentially the same. Go over there, get in firefights, whenever we roll out, um, more so than not getting in firefights, come back, refit, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, come back for three to four months and then redeploy. And that's essentially the life that I lived for up until 2011. And then I was supposed to go to SWIC. I had an option to do staff time to go be an instructor in the Q course or something like that. Everyone gets a two year break somewhere in there. And I went to, I stayed in group and I went to this section called Force Mod. And basically you push industry, the weapons industry, um, to design weapons, optics, munitions, demolitions, and things like that. And then once again, I had a loud mouth and I was like, hey, we need somebody downrange uh, getting direct feedback from the guys on the ground so we could expedite this two-year timeline down to six months. And they said, it looks like you volunteered for that. So out of 24 months that I was supposed to be non-deployable, I deployed 21 months. And I was working with every branch of special operations and every unit you can think of Essentially what I do is I'd say, okay, these guys are getting a bunch of firefights, fly in, get in firefights with them, send up feedback after every firefight to SOCOM headquarters on what worked, what didn't work equipment wise. And then as soon as that's right up, I fly to the next hot spot. And as soon as that's right up, fly to the next hot spot. And as soon as that's right up, fly to the next hot spot. And then as soon as that's right up, fly to the next hot spot. So I just stayed in firefights for that entire 21 months. It wasn't 21 months straight. I had two and a half months in between two deployments is a break back stateside. And that was the 24 months. Did you ever get tired? Like, did it ever deplete you? No, not at all. I thrived in those conditions. I actually, I actually prefer deploying. And I think a lot of people call special operations guys, specifically war junkies. And it's not that we're addicted to war. It's that we hate real life over here. Whatever we're over here, we have to deal with drama, right? We have to deal with, stupidity we have to deal with bills we have to deal with all this other stuff that that i do now as a civilian that i didn't want to in reality i come back from deployment i booze it up party buy some shit with the money that i had hook up with a chick and then a week later i'm ready to go i'm like let's go so it wasn't i preferred to be deployed than be stateside that makes sense actually i've, I've heard that i've heard that quite a bit um how how was it working with all of the 
different special operation teams? Like, were they, they all very different from each other or? Well, I mean, whether you're working with SEALs, MARSOC, Green Berets, other units in the army, other agencies, um, in Afghanistan, the mission was the mission. It was kind of all very similar, no matter what unit you were in. So you can come from different branches and everything like that. But if you bring something to the table to help that team or that SEAL platoon out, and at this time I was a senior E7, so I was one of the senior guys no matter what team I went to, if not higher ranking than their senior dude. And I just tell them, hey, treat me like I'm an E1 and have me do whatever. And I mean, there was a point in time where I was leading a SEAL platoon. I go in there and uh, the guy, Dave Hansen, who was an active valor, he was Chief Dave, we, I'd lead half a SEAL platoon and I'd like, I'd roll on missions with them. I'd be the NCYC or the non-commissioned officer in charge. And it was, it was pretty cool. So I built strong friendships with these guys. That's why I'm one of the army guys that if you notice on social media, I'm like, Oh, I'm now with these SEALs and I'm with these MARSOC guys. And the friendships that I made there getting to operate with different branches and in different capacities of special operations was awesome. So it wasn't awkward at all. I thought it was cool. Did it ever, did it ever hit you at one point or another? Like, holy shit. I, I, like, I can't believe I've gotten to this point in my life and I get to work with these people. No, I mean, I didn't. I mean, we're all peers. There's nothing different about, I mean, an ODA is the same as a SEAL platoon is the same as a MARSOC team. There's no difference. Um, no, I was, it was just like I was on my team. There was nothing special about it. No, I just mean like in general, whether you were on your team or you're working with the SEALs or any mm-hmm. of that, did it ever like no, you ever have a moment of just being proud of yourself for getting... Not proud of myself. I was proud of the guys that I worked with. I was like, wow, these guys are studs, right? Even on my team. But I mean, that's how everyone thinks of each other. It's it's put up or shut up on a team. And if, if you don't put up, then your shit's in the hallway the next day and you're off the team. Everyone's a stud. So mm-hmm. I wasn't... I was impressed by the capabilities of the individuals, not what branch or my team or being a Green Beret or anything like that. I was impressed by <clears throat> the uh, selfless service that everyone was willing, that the mission and the team was first. And it wasn't about being one person. It was about being a team. But each individual on our team brought something different to the table. I mean, I was team, on my team, I had a neurosurgeon. There was a neurosurgeon prior to going to the military. I had a Wall Street broker. I had a school teacher. I had a construction worker. All these things. So that's what makes special special operations team so unique is, yeah, we learn the stuff that we do in the military, but the, the life skills that we bring prior to going in there, it's just insane. Yeah. You know? Um. So not so. 2011 was is when things changed, right? Uh, yeah, that was that. Just they just kind of t- started tying our hands behind our back at that point. And before, if you wanted to roll an operation, you basically submitted a five-page operations order, and now you had to submit a 62-page one. So they said they weren't restricting us, but they made it very hard paperwork wise for us to roll. It's like, Oh, you guys want to roll on a mission? Sure. But you have to submit all this paperwork. And, uh, that turned into, you know what? Cool. We just won't have assets and bombers in fr- on top of us. We're just going to roll and take care of the bad guys without letting anybody know. So we do stuff where 
Um, no one from CG Soda headquarters, no one knew that we were out there. We had no support. It was just us taking care of bad guys because it took so long to get the con op approved. So we just roll and take care of it. And if something happened, then something happened. Did you get in trouble for that? No one knew. They, like, they didn't know afterwards either? No. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we just, we were like, okay, well, these bad guys still need to be taken care of. Um, whether they're killing civilians or putting in IEDs or something like that. So we just roll out without anybody knowing it and kill the bad guys. And then whenever we reported up the next day, we'd be like, hey, the local police killed like 20 bad guys here. There was an IED manufacturer. So we just give the credit to the local police and local guys. But we were just, it had to be done. And they made it so hard for us to do it with paperwork that we just went out and did it. So it really isn't about like the accolades or anything like that. Not at all. It's just about doing what needs to be done. Yeah. You said you're going to ask about awards and yeah, I have a ton of Valorous awards, but it's for every Valorous award that I have, an American died. Hmm. So it's like, how special are they? You know? That's a good point. You're like, okay, so I'm alive. He's dead. So my awards, I don't care about the awards. I don't care about any of that. None of that matters to me. My pet peeve is whenever you get, and I'm not going to say who he is, but you get a certain individual who's a Medal of Honor recipient, and now he's marketing himself from being a Medal of Honor recipient whenever he did his own write-up and all this stuff. And we don't need to go into that, but if you're if you're basing your life and your success off what you did in military as far as awards go, that's a shitty thing to do. If you're like, hey, my name's so-and-so. And I did this because my buddies who have Medal of Honors do not act like that or they're dead and they got it posthumously. So, yeah. Speaking of awards, and this is going down a little bit of a different route, but um, there's a reason you won those, or the, there's a reason you earned those awards. Yeah. Is there, was there one or two particular experiences that were tied to those awards that really like just. I don't know, hit home? No, not... So what's weird about those is whenever you do, and I'm using quotations here, finger quotations, valorous things, um, I was just doing what I thought anyone would do. I was just in that spot at that time. And I did what... I did the right thing, which anybody on my team would have done the right thing. It's just to them, it stood out, but it was a normal thing that I was doing, if that makes sense. I was just doing my job at that point in time. And it happened to be something that was valorous in my teammates' eyes. And three of them would write you up for an award. So I don't think it was, <laughs> I was literally just doing what I was supposed to do. There was nothing special about it. Um, what, do you have a particular time in all of your years of service that just really stood out for you? Something that has never entirely left the back of your mind? No, I kind of let it go. Um, there, I mean, obviously, when I got my Green Beret, that's a monumental thing. But other than that, it's... I've never... I've been in some pretty crazy situations, a ton. But like I said, majority of it... Of, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is my job. And yeah, you have people dying around you or people getting their legs blown off or something like that. But it's... As shitty as it sounds, it's kind of expected. Like, you you know something's going to happen. Um, 
the the 2005 rotation whenever Jason got killed and my buddy Roland got both his legs blown off that would probably be the deployment that stands out the most but other than that no and it's not I let that go you know like there's nothing I can do about it I was there I don't have survivor's guilt um I'm not the guy that whenever one of my buddies gets killed and I wasn't there that I get survivor's guilt it's like wow that sucks but it's also you know, they went out doing what they love. And I think us as humans were very selfish and we're like, man, uh, uh, uh. but they went out doing what they love. I'm going to be like 80 years old dying on a hospital bed. Maybe, you know what I mean? They went out with a blaze of glory, doing what they love. It's unfortunate that they did. And I wish they didn't, but my buddies that were dead would just be like, Hey man, just, just don't let us down with what you do in life. You know? Do, do you know I'm a firm advocate of honor and, and and living a life that they'd be proud of. So it doesn't bring me down. It's it's just doing, making sure that their sacrifice is is not forgotten and making sure that I'm living a life that they'd be proud of and that their sacrifice make their sacrifice worth it, if you will. Oh yeah. You know? that mentality come naturally to you or is it something you developed over time? I think I've kind of always thought that way, you know, it's a, you know, I did it with my mom, even though I kind of went backwards with that. Right. I went from, Oh yeah, make her proud to be a drug dealer, do all this shit, have sex, do it. And I'm like, Whoa. Um, but when I went in the military, you know, my perspective on all that changed and I was like, wow, okay. Like you can't be a shitbag anymore. You have to be professional you have to, Make your mom proud, your family proud, your country proud. proud. And yeah, you know, that's something like I, I tell people whenever I went into it, I was like, oh, I'm doing this for my country and God and the flag. And then I get to my team and I'm like, no, I'm just doing this for my team. I'm not doing it for my country. I'm not doing it for my flag. I'm not doing it for my family. I'm not doing it for freedom. I'm not doing it for any of that. I'm doing it so my teammates make it back in one piece. That's it. That's all that mattered. You know? Um, let's see. This is a little, a little out of the blue, but mm -hmm. I do want to ask just because I've, I've heard some funny stories this way. Mm -hmm. Do you have a moment that was like your funniest moment on a deployment that just like made all of the tough stuff that you guys were well, doing? Well, I didn't have a moment, but I had a pet. So that same deployment in 2005 we sent our terp to the border with money to get some things that we needed and we gave him like our own personal money and i wanted a pet baby lion like a lion cub and then rizza his name was rizza he calls back he's like hey i have one i was like okay and i started thinking i was like man a little lion cub turns into a freaking lion so that's probably a bad idea just get me a monkey so i had a monkey and that deployment, and we built her this huge cage, like huge, like literally like the size from this wall all the way over there. And we lined the bottom with plexiglass. So we'd spray it off every day with bleach water, total humane. We got her vaccinated and everything, our 18 Delta vaccinated her. And so many things with her. One time she busted out and she had a hand grenade in her hands. The other time I forgot to put like the 50 cal rounds underneath the trigger, the butterfly triggers on the M2. So she was like pressing the button, like she was gonna shoot it. I'd be riding a dirt bike and she'd do a backflip off 
and land on the back and just ride around with me off of like a two-story rooftop. She hated Afghani, so she used to beat up our workers and stuff. She used to beat up puppies. At one point, I was walking out of the bathroom taking a shower, and this was in Goresh, and I had my towel wrapped around me. And there were no women on this base. I mean, so we could do whatever we wanted, right? You could walk naked if you wanted to. I'm walking out, and it's a little cold, and I see my teammate Daryl with blood coming out of his arm, out of his hand, blood spraying everywhere, and my monkey's there with with a Leatherman knife holding it in her hand, and she weighed like five pounds, right? I'm like, what the hell? I thought my monkey somehow found a knife and was stabbing him. And what happened was he was trying to cut her this little curtain and he built her this little box that she could stay in because it was getting colder and she had a curtain. And then we ran a heater hose in the back so that she would be warm at nighttime. Well, he was cutting the curtain, his Leatherman, he accidentally cut his hand, dropped the Leatherman and then she picked it up. But I thought literally that she was stabbing him. We were worried about that monkey so I have to say this very strategically. We were worried about the team that replaced us killing that monkey. So one of our ally countries flew down a C-130. And the only thing that went back to said country was my monkey in a cage. And now she's in a monkey sanctuary in that country. So, yeah, we uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. I, I enjoyed it. That was, it's not anything funny, but that, that deployment, that monkey was just like awesome because that was probably one of my shittier deployments and then coming back to something that you're just like wow there she is like oh, this yeah. makes life easier you know Absolutely. so that she was she was awesome and her name was bizu which in Pashtu, that was my language in the q course that i had to learn uh means monkey point blank and she was awesome she was she was comedy relief non-stop you wake up in your bed and she's like on top of you like picking your lip or trying to pick your hair <laughs> And my hair was super long at the time, so she used to clean my hair like you see like gorillas cleaning each other and stuff. It was it was cool. Oh my god. And she literally just like just it was it was ridiculous. That was a really good move not going with the lion cub. Yeah, I mean I still wish we would have. That would have been insane. But it would have been adorable and then it uh, might have taken a different turn. Afghanis being interrogated would have definitely acted weird with an with a lion in the room. <laughs> um so so when, so during this whole time we've been talking about, we're up to 2011, um, what's going on in your personal life? So understand in that time, in this, in that span of, from that we just, that we just went on, I did nine deployments in that, in that time frame. Damn. Um, at one point in 2006, I tried being married, um, we went to, we came back. They tried seeing if we could do a nine-month deployment to Afghanistan. I did a nine-month deployment to Afghanistan, came back, was married for about a year and a half. She cheated on me, took my mother's life insurance that I received whenever I was 25, took all of it. Uh, we did have a kid named Jonas. He's 10 now. And um, tried making it work out after she cheated on me. It just doesn't work out. There's always an elephant in the room. But we did a nine-month deployment, came back for a month and a half, did six months in Pakistan, came back for two months, and did six months in Afghanistan. Boom, boom, boom. So as much as I want to hate her, I mean, she she's the C word for sure. Um, but uh, but she's – I wish she would have spent the money. She took like half a million dollars from me. 
I wish she would have spent it on my son or buy a home or something. No, she spent it literally on drugs and those stupid fuzzy slipper boot things, Uggs. And that's it. Like she just drugs and drugs and clothes and shoes. Um, but yeah, so what happened? Like what happened to your son? Oh, he's in Pennsylvania now. Um, like at that point though, when she's, Oh no, because they don't care. The army doesn't care. State of North Carolina doesn't care. She ran away to Pennsylvania. I didn't see my son for nine months at one point. And shortly after that, I deployed and they did this weird custody thing that was illegal technically. And I've, I've been fighting this for the past five years, but I was deployed and they said that I didn't want my son, that I was war drunkie and all this stuff. State of Pennsylvania awarded 100% custody to her and said that I was not allowed to text, call or anything my son. So I've been, I'm probably about $275,000 into this court case, just trying to see my son, just like talk to him on the phone. That'd be awesome. But, uh, the court, the court systems in America, man, they're, they're weird. They are. I mean, she's been in and out of rehab for, for heroin, um, two to three times, never home, been busted for prostitution, all this stuff. And she was not like this when we met, she was a beautiful girl, awesome at life, educated, and then just downward spiral. And they still say to Pennsylvania, Oh no, she, she's fixable. We can fix her. And you're just like, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, but personal life over there or personal life during that time frame, essentially I'd come back. I was a raging alcoholic. I just boozed it up. I'd buy random stuff like F three fifties or homes or bikes or drag cars and do all this stuff. I just wasted all my money and I would lie to every relationship of a woman that I had just to, just for the physical aspect to get the physical aspect out of it. And then once I did, I'd be like, bye on to the next one. And then by the time that they realized what had happened to him, I'd be on a deployment and I could forget about them easily. And I really had, I mean, and and all that stems back to as well. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was smart enough to realize, you know, I lost my virginity whenever I was seven ish years old. And then I was sexually active again, whenever I was 12 years old. And so I never really understood a relationship. I didn't grow up seeing a relationship. I didn't, I remember talking to my dad one time. So let's go there. I met my dad when I was 19 for the first time. Uh, no, second time. He came out once to Arizona to see us for two days and left. Whenever my mom died, I called him and I was like, hey, I want to come stay with you. you know, back in the day, you used to have this thing called like Star 6-9 or 411 or something like that. And you could just, I knew what state he was in. So I asked for all the Permianos and then figured out his first name and found out his number. He's like, listen, I don't have time for you and I don't want you to move here. And that's after my mom, but I was like, cool. Sorry, I'm about to yawn, you guys. So I go out there when I'm 19 to, fuck, to like, to, to mess him up, drive up to Pennsylvania to meet him. And this little dude gets out. He's like, you're built like a brick shit house. I'm like, no, go to his house. He has like this mansion of a home. I'm like, why didn't you ever pay child support? Why don't you do anything? You land to pay $200 a month. He's like, yeah, you know. I was like, well, you're never going to be able to buy your way back into our lives. I was like, how much money do you make per year? He's like, $11.7 million. I'm like, awesome. He started Hertz for a car company. He was one of the original founders or vice presidents of that. Then he started selling insurance, wrote two books. He's a published author. Um, and then right about that time, I want to stab him in his throat. And then I turned around and this lady, and her name was Marianne. And she ended up being my stepmom. She's deceased now. 
But then I see two little girls and a little boy, and they're my half-siblings. And I was like, wow, awesome. Didn't know about them. Um, but he tried, for example, he tried buying his way back in my life. He tried buying me a Jeep one time in 2001 or two, and I just sold that to my teammate for six grand and then sent him a check for six grand. And it was a brand new vehicle. I told him he couldn't buy his way back in my life. And I've always been kind of bitter to that. Um, How did he respond when you said, when you asked him about child support? He just said, oh, you know, you mess up. Like, okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, But that's been, you know, he's been trying to come in my life, out of my life, in my life, out of my life. And and my point of view on that is, is I know I should, I know I should forgive and forget, but he was never a part of my life. So why should I let him now? And he's more than welcome to be in his grandkids' life as much as he wants to, but he doesn't want to there either. He used me as a bragging chip whenever he found out that I was a Green Beret. Uh, so I was an, an immediate bragging chip. Oh, my son, my son, my son. And the other kids are bitter towards us. You know, we grew up dirt freaking poor. They were like driving cars that are awesome. I'm talking like Mercedes-Benz to high school and stuff. So silver spoons on that side and like plastic spoons on my end. I can't relate to them. They can't relate to me. I try to work with my half-brother as far as relationships and we can be cordial, but it's just two different worlds. And by the time that he tried being in my life, it was already too late. I already established myself as a man. I, I had my father figure who was like my, his name was Roy. It's my aunt's husband. And um, I didn't need him in my life at that point. You know, That's fair. I'm a firm believer that family can stress you out. And if anything now stresses me out in life, I don't care who they are, what relationship they are to me at all. I cut them out. Like the only thing that I will work on is with my daughter's mom. Other than that, you, if, if you're going to cause stress in my life, I don't have time for you, you know? Have you always, like, thought that way? No, I didn't. I didn't until, like, four or five years ago. But then I noticed that I was inheriting everybody's problems that was in my life. Mm. And then that was causing stress to me. And I'm stressed out and sucking at life, and it's not even my own problem. It's their problem. And whenever you, whenever you can, whenever, you, you know, I'm not saying like be a dick to your friends, but I'm saying if you have somebody in your life that is repetitively messing up, messing up, messing up, messing up, that is affecting your life. Give them a chance. And if they keep on doing it, cut them away. It's not, it's not beneficial to you. You're the average of the top five people you hang out with. And I'm, like I said the other day, whenever we're, whenever you're in class with me, I'm fortunate enough to say the top five I hang out with are studs. If I'm even, if I'm average of that, then I'm a fucking superhero. Um, but a lot of people, whenever they sit back and they look at the top five people they associate with, like, wow, that's what people think of me. Yeah, that is, dude. That's who people associate you with. Yeah. No, that, that definitely stuck with me. That's. Whoever is listening, if you have a chance to take one of Johnny's courses, it's, I mean, they're amazing, period. But also just you drop these like nuggets of wisdom all throughout your courses. And that was one of the ones that, that definitely stuck. Um, so, so, okay. So 
Your son. Okay, let's see. His he name's lives. Jonas. Mm-hmm. Jonas. He lives in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And then I have my I have a almost two year old daughter named Danger. We're not going to say where she lives. Uh, her name's Gabrielle. Her middle name's Danger. Um, same thing. Uh, and I'll tell you right now, every single person in special operations that I know has issues with relationships. We're not good at them. It's funny. We can be, we're very good at combat. We're very good at leading men in combat. We're very good at taking a a bad human being's life. We're very good at high stress situations, but we suck at fundamental skills like interpersonal relationships with loved ones. So same situation as everybody else. Um, for to the most credit, part that I know. Those are really like hard. Just putting that out there. Yeah. Uh, no, I know they are, but it's, so the problem with, with us and guys with my background is we try to approach a relationship with the same thing that we do in combat. It's like, oh, I can lead in combat. And women like to have conversations and we're like, okay, get to the point. What is, <laughs> what is the end state? And, or they'll like keep everything built up and then blow up and you're like, okay, I got you. And they want to drive home the point and like, okay, I got you. All right, now I'm mad and I'm leaving the house so we don't argue. Oh, you don't want to face this problem? No, I want to leave. Like, I understand what you're saying. I'm processing this. I got you. I will try not to, I will try to not do that again. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's, it's, that's not the way we're wired. We want, what's a problem? How are we fixing it? Done. And we can, in our minds, we can accomplish that in about 35 seconds. What's a problem? How are we find a solution and fix it? We don't need an hour and a half. And most of the time, you guys like to talk to us about it, about we're already sleeping somewhat. It's about two minutes prior to being like a deep REM sleep. And you're like, hey, hey, <laughs> hey, I was thinking today, da, 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 and you don't understand why we're angry. It's like I was asleep and you woke me up to have this conversation whenever you could have had it earlier. We had plenty of time, but you chose now. So now I'm angry. And then women take offense to it because they think we don't care. But no, I'm just tired and I was asleep. And now you want to talk about the dynamic of our relationship whenever you had hours to do it before this, but you chose this time. But now I'm a jerk off. Sorry. I'm a dick because I'm mad that you woke me up. Yeah. Are you guilty of that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Parker and I have definitely had a couple conversations like that. Well, I mean, like, just from the other perspective, it's like, it's been a long day. You guys both are busy during the day. And, like, we may not know that you're sleeping. We just think, oh, things are calm. Oh, no, you guys and they're know. good. And they're sweet. So it you goes, know, let me it bring goes this complete, up because it'll go smoothly. It is complete silence. And there's deep breathing. You know Sometimes We're you guys think that time is much longer than it is, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But no, there's. I'm <laughs> just saying, there's other times that people can have those conversations, and it's not right before bed. And I here's agree the, with and you. here's the thing. Here's the thing. You have that conversation right before bed. One of you is going to be pissed off because let's be real. In a relationship, there's no like let's come to a negotiation. Both people want to win in an argument. So one person's going to be mad. One person's going to be happy. One person's going to think they won. One person's going to think they're lost. Both of you guys are going to wake up jacked up. And the person lost is going to be even more angry. And then that's a downward spiral right there. Then there's more stuff that happens. And then just compounds, 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 compounds. And so, like I said, guys with my background or my personality, tell me what the problem is. Let's come up with a solution. Let's fix it now. Am I going to do it again? Probably. 
right? <laughs> it's just going to be real. But I will try not to. And, and just idea, you know? But don't, like I said, we suck at relationships. But that's, I mean, like, I feel like that's the key to any relationship at the end of the day. Like, the relationships that work are with people who actually give a shit and are going to keep Well, and communicate, yeah. yeah. I think communication is key. And understanding, excuse me, on a team we communicate way different than normal people are used to. So they think, you ask anybody like, wow, Johnny's intense. But then you ask anybody about Mike and people are like, wow, Mike's intense. And then you ask people about Kurt. Wow, Kurt can be intense. Billy can be intense. Like all these guys that you've interviewed that I know, I know what people think, but everyone on a team is that way. And it's like, if you have an issue with somebody, you're like, hey, dude, you messed up here. Here's what you need to do. Okay, got it. Sorry, I let you down. On to the next one. And it's over. You know? Yeah. And I mean, they, like, I feel like it's a good intensity. I mean, like, everybody you just mentioned, they're some of my favorite people. And they're some of the people I look up to the most just because they're they're just solid. Like, there's no if, ands, or buts about things. Like, it's very clear where everything is, which is amazing. I agree. Yeah. Um, Okay, so... Going going back a little bit, so what's going on now in your life? I mean, you know, you have you Are have a son. 2011. What, I think so. What at what point did you? Uh, we tried it? we tried working it out for like two to three years. So okay. we were so this is weird. We weren't divorced, but we definitely weren't together, right? But I just didn't want to be. I wanted her to have insurance. I wanted her. You know, and I was mm-hmm. I was like trying not to be a dick to them. So she continued in a downward spiral. I was trying to see my son. I drive up on the weekends from North Carolina when I was home to see him. And uh, yeah, it was, life was good. It was, I was able to see my son. I didn't have to deal with her. And then I deploy, you know, it's really weird too about deploying is now that I had a son in my life, but he wasn't my priority. My team was still my priority. So whenever you deploy, it'd be like, I know I should call him right now, but I could be doing this to make this better. I'm going to do this to make this better. And the whole time it's, we call special forces a mistress. You know, there's this whole thing that we say. And then at the end it's like, and then she'll find somebody younger than you and leave you. And that's the truth. (laughs) Did you ever worry about like his well-being while you were gone? No, because her parents are super squared away. Okay. Yeah. So... I knew that he had squared away people in his life that were taking care of him. He had, he had a solid foundation there and I wasn't worried about that. I mean, it makes sense that you wouldn't like, he wasn't your priority while you were gone because if, if your team and what you were doing wasn't your priority, it's bad stuff. happens. Yeah. You wouldn't, you might not have come back. Well, not me. I don't care about me coming back. And that's the thing is like, I, I wasn't, it wasn't about self-preservation. It was about worried about if I mess up, then one of my teammates may not come back. So I never was worried and you can majority of the people that I know, they weren't worried about self-preservation. Like if we got it, we got it. I was worried about one of my teammates getting it, you know? Are you still in touch with them? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. So, um, so what year are we in now? Uh, we can say, okay, so we went back to 2011 and we fast forwarded to the staff job that I did. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, getting out. 
uh, we'll go straight to end of 2014-ish, 15-ish, and um, kept on deploying, kept on deploying, kept on deploying, and I was like, wow, this is this is ridiculous. There's no end in sight. This is my life, and this is all I know how to do. And uh, took a leap of faith. I kind of used my family <laughs> as an excuse, my son and stuff, to work the system to be able to get out on like for family issues and uh ended up getting out of the military and um i was on terminal leave i had a 1949 ford shoebox it was getting painted in salt lake city and flew out here sorry i'm yelling, yawning you guys uh flew out here but it is 5 30 and almost pitch black well will be pitch black outside flew out here to pick it up. And I fell in love with the place, fell in love with the people, fell in love with, you know, majority of people are fit here. Um, everyone's nice. There's tons of stuff to do outdoors. So I told my teammate to pack my stuff up and ship it out here. I'm not coming back. And I did. And so I ended up in Salt Lake city, Utah, uh, started struggling at first because going from, I say people are nice here, but people aren't like, it's not like being on a team. Then a lady named Lisa invited me to Jim Jones and Jim Jones is the place that they did the strength conditioning for like the Spartan movies and Batman versus Superman and Man of Steel and all that stuff. The well-known gym and one of the most notorious gyms in the world. She invited me to train there and then she invited me to do certifications. I ended up being a fully certified instructor there. So I find camaraderie there and the camaraderie that I find is it's a group of civilians that just won't quit. And if you quit, then you don't train there because that shit spreads and if you make quitting an option one time, then it's an option for a second time and third time. And then that turns into your primary option. So we don't allow people to quit there. And I found amazing civilian people there to fill that void of camaraderie of not having my team. Um, I tried working at a company named Silencer Co. And was thrown into somewhat of a leadership position. But then I realized like most civilians hate their jobs. They don't even want to be there. They're just there for a paycheck. You ask anybody that, 99% of the time, oh, it pays the bills. I'm sure you can relate to that. We were talking prior to this. And um, so it pays the bills and that's fine, but you don't want to be there. And it's few and far between in a civilian company that you find people that are actually loyal to that company. And we're doing a lot of radical stuff. They wanted slushy machines. We gave them slushy machines. Leadership, we barbecue for them. Once a month, they, we like pool tables in the break room, foosball tables, everything. If they read books then and wrote a report we'd read it and we give them a $50 gift card if it was good to anywhere they wanted continuing education we pay for it and we're talking about like 275 people that we were doing this for but I just I hated micromanaging I wasn't a micromanager whenever I was in leadership position in the military I'd give a left limit a right limit and a desired end state and come tell me when it's done but in the civilian world I would give somebody a desired end state left limit right limit I go back two hours later and they haven't even they're not even a tenth of the way through and I'm like dude you should be done by now oh no but I have all day no you don't have all day you're at work and whenever you finish this task I'm going to give you another task and when you're done with that one I'm going to give you another one and then I realized that the uh, the get it done attitude and work ethic that we had on the special operations team is quite opposite of what's in the civilian world and I found myself turning into a dick as a leader where I was micromanaging people I just couldn't deal with it so left I just left and I was making very good money there. And I knew that I was good at teaching people how to shoot because I've taught Afghanis via an interpreter in my, in my language, Pashtu, on how to 
do everything from breach to shoot guns to clear rooms with us to interrogate bad guys and land nav and drive and do all that. So if I could teach an Afghani how to do that, then I could teach an English speaking person how to do that. And I decided I was going to start a training company in March of 2016. And I was laying there trying to come up with a name and I chose all this really, you know, I've been ego driven my entire life and which can be a positive and a negative. And for the most part with me, it was a negative. Everything I accomplished in life was trying to prove myself to other people and never to myself, which shameless plug. That's what my book Prove myself to me is about. It's, you know, how I transitioned to proving everything to me where I'm just trying to prove stuff that I can do it. And I don't care what other people think. Um, when does that come out? July 31st this year, 2019. So the name of the company is going to name Primo Elements. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's dumb. And then, I was dreaming one night and I was briefing my team and we came up with different courses of action on our team. So a course of action is like a plan or a set of plans that you can apply in a situation. So if, if plan A doesn't work, we can flex plan B. If that doesn't work, then we can modify plan A and C to make it work. And I was like, courses of action. That's the name of it. So as soon as I, as soon as I woke up the next day, I was all excited my girlfriend at the time's name was Sarah. That's baby mama number two. And I'm almost a rapper, I guess. Two baby mamas. And uh, so I went and looked online and, and COA cost 100 grand for that website. Somebody already owned it. So I just typed in courses-of-action or hyphen, if you will. And it was available. So I bought that. And then I paid LegalZoom an expedited, like I think I paid $1,700 to have an expedited business license in three days. They covered all the stuff in Utah, everything. And then next thing you know, boom, here we go. And then my buddy, who's another Jim Jones instructor, Nate Chambers, he's like, dude, if you let me train for free, I'll design your website. Sweet. And I was like, I don't want, I don't want skulls and all this stuff. Uh, you know, there's a lot that comes in here, like logo design and all this stuff. I don't want skulls. I don't want any of that crap. I just want it to look clean, like an apple website he did that logos came back i just wanted something that if you know what it is you know what it is the logo but if you don't it just looks like a logo there's no guns there's no flames or skulls or any of that i think that shit's dumb as far as marketing goes and um boom started that in march 2016 around the same time that mike glover launched fieldcraft and we both kind of just took off like wildfire throughout this country. And our, my, my goal is to make every, everyone I interact with a better person, whether it's teaching them, talking to them or something like that. And uh, whether it's on an airplane talking to the person next to me, whether it's a student paying whatever amount of dollars to learn from me, just make them leave a better person than whenever I found them or whenever they found me. And I haven't had any complaints yet. You know, we've taught well over 7,000 people in the span of almost three years. So, Damn. yeah. Along those lines of what you just said, um, what, what is the best, like what's the, what piece of advice has impacted you in particular the most? There's a few. My Sergeant Major Keith and Ann told me the minute you think you're better than anybody else, you're fucked. Um, I believe that. He also said ego stifle progression. I believe that. I tell people, don't say you don't have time. Say it's not a priority. I believe that. 
my slogan is hope is not a course of action. And I think a lot of people like to sit there on their asses and just wish, 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 wish for something to happen when all you have to do is put your feet in the water and go. Um, you're not going to drown. Something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It may be positive, it may be negative, but you can learn from the negative and make that a positive. If you look at negative experiences as a learning experience, then is it really a negative experience? No, it's a positive experience because you're not going to do that shit again. Um, so hope is not a course of action. You just have to do it. You have to action it. And that's what I live by, those things right there. And you're the average of the five pe- top five people you hang around. If you could instill one trait in, in everybody in the world, what trait would it be? Believe in yourself and don't limit, your, don't, don't limit yourself. Self-imposed limitations. People tend to, well, there's two. So don't limit yourself. I'm big on self-imposed limitations. People think they can't do something when all it takes is work. And I'm not saying you can do everything. Like anybody that's like, oh, you can do anything you put your mind to. They're dumb. You can't. There's some things that you just can't do. It's not for you. Um, But for the most part, if you work hard, you can get what you want out of life. Um, I would say always be prepared for whatever situation is going to be presented to you, whether it's a meeting, whether it's somebody trying to mug you, whether it's whatever situation it is. I have to be prepared to do a motivational speech at Nike and then flip from that to teaching people how to protect themselves and then flip to that to be on a plane ride next to somebody, a flight next to somebody that's just very inquisitive and wants to, you know what I mean? So just be all around prepared for whatever curveballs life throws at you or whatever situations you're presented with. Which leads right into courses of action. Yes. And you know what's funny is the other day we were doing the Cavaders course. Obviously there was that gang shooting in Fashion Place Mall that happened right whenever I let you guys go. So funny thing last night, you know, I always say we don't have enough time for cops to show up there. Like it takes a long time. So where I'm staying right now was in Lehigh last night. All my guns are there. Everything's there. My buddy Justin calls me. He's like, hey, the alarms are going off. So I go in, I have a blade on me, which I always have on me. You know that now. And soon you will as well. Well, you do. You carry, I know what mm-hmm. you carry. So you just know how to use it now. So I go in the house with my blade, ready to go. It's blacked out. It's a huge home. I go in there. Boom, 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 boom. He requests Vivint security, calls the cops. As soon as they're like, hey, somebody's in there. He checks with all of us. No one, none of us are there. He's like, yes, send the cops. 27 minutes for the cops to respond. And this is Lehigh, you guys. For those of you that aren't from Utah, look up Lehigh, and it's not a big place. No. It's tiny. 27 minutes for cops to respond, which, what do I tell you guys in courses? You're your own first line of defense. Like, you're your own first response. Cops don't, they're, they, they, you don't have enough time to rely on police. It's not their fault. And... So that happened the day after the course, or the day of the course, that shooting happened. And that happened yesterday. I'm just like, wow, like all this shit's happening. So you guys, I'm not making this up. You can look it up anyway. Look up cop police response times. But yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I know I kind of went off on a tangent. There. No, 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 no. That was, it was perfect. I mean, there's, there is so much you can do to protect yourself and just to. What's laziness and people being in a bubble thinking that's not going to happen to them. Oh, that'll never happen to me. Uh, no one wants a gun, no one wants a blade, no one wants to spend money on training, no one wants to put the time in because it will never happen to them. And I look at all this crap 
it's not crap. All this stuff is like an airbag in a car. I remember riding with my grandma. She's smoking a cigarette wearing a Datsun truck, no airbags, seatbelts not even buckled, just cruising down the road, right? Nowadays, would you buy a car without an airbag? No. You're just not going to do it. Mm-mm. What are the chances of using that? Slim to none. Yep. But you, you like knowing that it's there. It's the same with training and protecting yourself and understanding medical training, understanding trauma medicine, understanding how to fight with a pistol, how to fight with your hands, how to fight with a blade, how to fight with a carbine, how to fight with your legs, kick, like the full package, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's part of what you talk about in your course. Like, don't be a liability. Like, yeah. Be no, able be an to asset. Yourself. Yes, exactly. be an asset. And what did you say? It takes 30 seconds for, for a crime to happen? Like... You said something about... Uh, no, I said, I said uh, you know, I trained for my evil twin. Mm-hmm. And I stole that from my buddy, Kurt. Um, but uh, if, if I, if somebody like me is motivated, I can get through your lock in about three seconds. And in the span of a minute and 30 seconds, do whatever I want to your family and take whatever I want and be out of there. Yep. You know? And not everybody who has skill sets like you do is going to have the same mentality you do and not do shit like that. Yeah. So it's... I'm just looking at the bottom drawing over there. Sorry. The bottom... Sketch. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Puny's a flipping with three guys. Um, We're not going to talk about what that is. Um, (laughs) So let's see. From this point, what... Like, how can people get involved with you and courses of action how can they can they pre-order your book no i'm not doing any pre-orders it's going to be a release date and we're only going to release a certain number of of books and we'll release that number quarterly and it's not being a dick i just rather get the word out there and people i what what i envision is people not keeping the book to themselves and handing it on to other people read it learn from it hand it on um you can check me out on just type in courses of action on Google and my website will come up. It's www.courses-of-action.com. On Instagram, I'm courses underscore of underscore action. And that's an easy way to get a hold of me and figure out what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And what's like, what's next? What do you, what do so you we're standing up, uh, so I'm building my army now. So we're starting instructor development courses throughout the country. So it's a three day course and a five day course. And it's a, I'd say maybe 60, 70% will actually pass the beginner or advanced one. And then after that, hominis dominus, I'm going to write, bless you off to teach my curriculum throughout this country. So building an army of courses of actions, instructors, certifications, and things like that. That's awesome. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I'm stoked. Yeah, you definitely. Less work on my end. Let them do it. Yeah, the uh, the yawning, yeah, I mean, it is just after 5.30 and it is just about dark out, but you are also going like nonstop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wake up, I train, I get to deal with my daughter, and that's an amazing experience. That's not a negative, but dealing with a two-year-old can be quite, you know, like I'm trying to paint baseboards earlier, and she's dipping her hands in the paint and putting it on her face and in her hair, so that was neat, you know? It makes Um, you feel any better. My mom has shared with me that they had to stop taking me in public when I was two. Because I would just kind of run and want to play hide and seek. Yeah. Well, and then, so like, she's like wanting to be naked now. So she'll be standing there looking at me naked and she'll kind of like get this little, and she just goes pee everywhere. It's awesome. Um, Thank God we have wooden floors. 
so I'm trying to do all that. So yeah, I'm, I'm busy all day trying to be a dad. I'm working out. I'm running a company. I'm trying to grow a company. I'm answering emails and Instagram direct messages and trying, if you talk to me on it, if it's a positive or negative, if you acknowledge me on Instagram, whether it's a post or a direct message or a comment on one of my posts, I respond to you. It may just be a little heart, but I respond to you. Oh uh, yeah. And I can ask you <laughs> before I ever met you, you responded. Yep. And then not too long down the line, um, there's a dog coming in too. Yeah. I get Rocco from, um, from labs for Liberty. He's, uh, an Italian cane Corso. He's not a corn queso. <laughs> and, uh, He's, he's awesome. He's about 90 pounds right now. He'll get up to about 160, but he'll be a traveling dog. And that's through Labs for Liberty. They're out of Morgan, Utah. And basically what they do is um, they provide labs, Labs for Liberty, to veterans and I believe first responders and stuff like that. <clears throat> they need a companion. But every now and then they get a Belgian or a King Corso or something like that. And then they push those off to special operations guys for the most part, just through due to our personality. So I was always under the impression that other people deserved it more than I did. And then, um, if you know the lady that runs laps for Liberty, she's, uh, she gets her point across very easily and make sure you understand it. And she said, no, you you get this dog. And I was like, okay, no, I don't. And, and she had some choice words to convince me that I did. And yeah, so here we are. I get him in April, I think, is whenever we're pairing in Arizona. As wonderful as Joan is, and if you haven't listened to her interview, <laughs> like, do yourself a favor and go listen to it. She, uh, she doesn't take shit from anybody. No, at all. <laughs> No. Which is why she's good at dealing with uh, special operations guys specifically. I, you guys, I'm not elitist. This is just what I know. Um, my friends are special operations guys. I don't think I'm better than anyone. That's just how, how the dice rolled for me. Um, but she's very good at dealing with with us. She understands our personalities uh, because I believe that she has a very similar personality. So, yeah. And then Roger is Roger. He's awesome. Yeah, he's he's wonderful, and they're uh, yeah they're incredible people doing some really really amazing things. Thank you for doing this. No worries. I'm really grateful you were here, and uh, yeah, it's just I was grateful to get to meet you, and then to go through your courses, and for you to do this. By the way, she first met me in a Costco. Oh shit, that's right. And yeah. she met me in a Costco. And she's been stalking me since. So if yeah. Paige says hi to you one time, like you can't, you're gonna, she's gonna be there for good. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs>